Why do we remember the Reformation? How can something that happened 500 years ago actually relate to us? My answer is this. The Reformation happened because men of God can relate to us. The very heart of the Reformation is to recover grace. And the one thing that every man and woman knows, if they are honest with themselves, it is that they need grace. It's what the Reformers knew as well, and it's what drove them to understand the doctrine more clearly. In fact, what really was recovered in the Reformation was what we call the imputed righteousness of God given to us through Christ and rediscovered and preached again some 500 years ago. Sinclair Ferguson, in his um, excellent book, In the Year of Our Lord, uh, describes the situation surrounding Martin Luther's rediscovery of these doctrines and says this. I'm going to read sort of an extended passage for you this morning. I think you'll find it profitable. He says this, quote, Luther was a devoted monk, though by his fellows, thought by his fellows to be a potential candidate for sainthood. In 1510, he was given the opportunity to visit Rome on behalf of the Augustinian chapter at Erfurt. Here, surely, he would find true spirituality. Instead, he saw only corruption. He returned a despondent and depressed man. He was troubled by the question, how can I be sure when I die that I'm going to stand before God and be welcomed into heaven? Behind what seemed to others to be his exemplary discipline and his growing knowledge of the Bible, and in large measure because of the latter, he was increasingly concerned about his standing before God. One biblical text that especially disturbed him was Romans 1, 16 and 17. If the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, how could he, a sinner, escape damnation? He was far from being the righteous person who could live by faith. Thus, the righteousness of God terrified rather than consoled him. Although he was a professor of theology, he came to hate Paul's words, for a righteous God would undoubtedly condemn him for his sin. The background to Luther's thinking lay in the late medieval order of salvation in which, beginning with the first reception of grace in the sacrament of baptism, the individual responded as best he could with a view to infuse grace eventually creating a faith filled with love on the ground of which God would righteously justify him or her and do so by grace. Let me explain. He's saying that what troubled Luther the most is that Luther was stuck in a religious system that began with infant baptism that was explained to him as being the beginning of the infusions of grace. Think of it like a blood transfusion. This is a grace transfusion. It was given to you beginning at your baptism, and then as you went on through confirmation and the other sacraments, you would grow in the grace that was given to you through the church and under the authority of the Pope until you had become good enough that you really could be saved. And when accused of saying, well, that's not grace, they say, well, of course it is. We've been infusing grace into you from the time you were an infant. 
this is what troubled Luther, because Luther knew better. He knew that could never work. And so, in a nutshell, the Roman Catholic Church taught that infused grace makes us inwardly righteous so that God can justify us. But therein lay the problem. How could anyone know that they had come to the point where infused grace had produced in them perfect righteousness? This was possible only for the few saints who had reached great heights of holiness or had been granted a special revelation. No wonder Cardinal Robert Bellarmine would later comment that of all Protestant heresies, assurance of salvation was the chief, unquote. The assurance of your salvation. It's a heresy to the Roman Catholic Church. It's a false teaching to some so-called Protestant churches. But the assurance of your salvation and the absolute guarantee that Christ's righteousness is the only righteousness upon which you will ever be judged is the very heartbeat of a Christian gospel. We have spent the last several months unpacking that through the book of Romans, and especially chapter 9. And as you know, we began all the way back in chapter 9, verse 1, and took it through chapter 10, verse 4. And over the course of many sermons and many weeks, we went deep into that text. And you can look those up and listen to them for more detail if you would like. But this morning, what I'd like to do, since we have many other important things to cover on this Lord's Day, is end this section much the way we started it, which is to give you the overview again. And we're going to march through the entire chapter of Romans 9 this morning, and we are going to draw from it some of the most important principles that we learned along our journey. We're going to go back to those commemoration stones that we set up along the way, reminding us of doctrines that perhaps we had never fully understood before, truth that we had never seen before, the grace of God we have never felt before an illumination that opened up our eyes to things we'd never seen before. And we're going to go back and we're going to look over this again and rejoice in all that God has graciously and kindly revealed to us. There are three big sections, if I were to break it down for you, if you're a note taker. The first one is Paul's proposition. That's in verses 1 through 13. The second is the objection in verses 14 through 29. And then finally, the solution in 9.30 down through 10.4. The proposition, chapter 9, 1 to 13. The objections in chapter 9, 14 through 29. And the solution, chapter 9, verse 30 through 10.4. Let us begin then looking at it as we read together. Please follow along in your copy of God's Word. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one out of the pew rack in front of you and you can follow along with us. Or you can pull it up on your phone, and while you're at it, you can silence your phone. Because that would be the right thing to do. This is the word of the Lord. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, a word that meant external pressure, and unceasing anguish, the internal torment of one's heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. In the opening argument that Paul makes here in chapter 9, he makes the amazing statement that for the sake of his brethren, the Jews, he would wish himself accursed or unsaved if it meant that they would be redeemed. He is filled with sorrow on the inside and pressure from the outside, always culminating in this heartbreak over his people. He's a broken-hearted evangelist. And he looks back and he says, of all the people, they ought to be the ones who understood this. They ought to be the ones who saw the Messiah coming because uh, they were given the adoption. It was from their people. Uh, they were given the glory. Moses was seen the glory of God as he revealed it, remember, when he sheltered him in the mountain and allowed it to pass by. They had seen the glory of the Lord come and to fill the place where he would meet with his people. They received the covenants. We talked about that at length back at the beginning of this series. The covenant that was made to Abraham. The covenant where God says, I want you to go and I want you to get several animals and I want you to cut those animals in half and I want you to make a trail of blood. And then what we're going to do is we're going to make a covenant together. You're going to obey me or I am going to do to you what you did to these animals. And I in turn will remain loyal to you. And Abraham was put to sleep. And God walked through. And there are so many astonishing principles that come out of just that very image alone. But first of all, bear in mind that the person who was the weaker of the two was the one who made the covenant. Uh, the person who was the servant made the covenant. The person who was the vassal made the covenant. In this case, it was God who walked through. It was God who said, I will promise to you without making you promise to me. And not only was he not willing to promise, not only was he not able to promise, but he was put to sleep, so it was impossible for him to make that promise. In fact, God renders Abram or Abraham utterly incapacitated in order that the covenant would stand, and it would stand as a promise, a promise to Abraham that if he ever failed God, that God would take on the punishment that should have fallen to him. And that's exactly what happened when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty, not only for Abraham's sin, but for the sin of everybody who came before and after him who put their faith in Christ. You see, these covenants, whether it was with Abraham or with Moses or with David or the, Ab or the covenant that came from Christ himself, these were given to the Jewish people. They should have known. They were given the law to Moses and even before the written law through the prophets that were granted they were given the worship, a word that we get our English word liturgy from. And they were told how to approach God in a way that honored God. They were also given the promises and the patriarchs. The patriarchs go back from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph. And through Joseph, the protection of the 70 people that made up the Jewish nation at that time. And for 400 years preserved, though in Egypt and in slavery for much of that time, into a mighty nation of two million that were led out by Moses, a people who then went into the land of promise to defeat the enemies of God and to take over the land promised to them. 
a group that eventually called upon Samuel the prophet to bring them a king. And from there came Saul and then King David. And from King David's line all the way down to Messiah Christ. You see, from the very beginning until now, they are the ones who have received not only the promises, but the patriarchs through their race, according to their flesh, all the way to Christ. And it is Christ today whom we worship and serve. And so Paul is heartbroken for them, but he continues on in verse 6 with his proposition, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. I mean, you and I might think at this point, well, then everything's been, been blown. I mean, here comes Christ, he reveals himself as Messiah, and the Jews turn on him and they kill him, and, and therefore it's all completely gone to nothing. He says, no, it hasn't failed, for uh, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all the children of Abraham are the children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but, strong contrast, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. In his continuing proposition, remember, Paul is saying that the case he wants to lay out here is that to be a true child of God, to be a true son of Abraham, to be a true sibling of the promise is a spiritual reality, not a physical reality. It's not about your earthly physical lineage. It's not about your birth certificate. It's about whether or not you are chosen of God. And he goes on to describe the fact that God, for no reason other than his own unconditional purposes and for his own glory, has chosen some those who would be the children of the promise. Now, this was contested by some, and they say, well, what he really means here is that God only chose one particular son of Abraham, because Abraham had a lot of sons, and he just chose one because he had to have an heir. And Paul goes on to embrace that argument and clarify that, no, it doesn't stand, because the same is true, notice it, with Rebekah. She only had one husband, and there was only one line, and as a result, the two children in that perspective are absolutely equal from the eyes of man, and yet God says in his own divine wisdom, the older will serve the younger. He's referring here to Jacob and Esau. Now, that was completely fulfilled in 2 Samuel 8.14 when King David, representing Jacob's line, puts under submission and dominion and into servitude the people of Edom, who are the people who came from Esau. But here, on a very individual level, notice it, it also applies. These are individuals. Jacob, the individual baby I have loved, but Esau, the individual baby I have hated. By hated here, we do refer to the fact that he was not chosen. He was passed over. I find it very interesting that despite the fact that the old covenant is filled with practices that we know to be ungodly, for example, polygamy, or the giving of everything to the firstborn son and nothing to the rest, 
God has this way of repeatedly, throughout all of his covenant revelation, turn that on its head to where all of the polygamous marriages seem to turn out terribly, and every one of the opportunities that he has to manifest his glory in terms of sibling order, it is the younger that ends up having the place of prominence. It's amazing how, in his grace, he takes the sinful choices of men and he demonstrates that even those can be ordained for the good that he wants to have accomplished. Are they responsible? Yes. Are those acts ordained by him? Yes. How do the two work together, his sovereignty and man's responsibility? Well, that's a mystery we don't entirely understand. But it's one that plays itself out over and over again on the pages of Scripture. But this is his proposition. One was chosen, the other passed over. Now, this is going to raise objections in our minds. We dealt with these in detail for several weeks, but let's review. There are objections in verses 14 through 29. The first objection comes in 14 through 18. Let's look at it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy, and will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who is mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, this really answers the question of who. Who is responsible, as it were, for the unfolding of redemptive history? Who is responsible for creation and the fall and redemption and restoration? And the answer goes back repeatedly to God himself. It's God who is in complete control. It is God who offers mercy. It is God who offers grace. It is the grace that was recovered during the Reformation. A grace not infused into you by religious practices in the church, but a grace that was given to you by no work of your own. I love the fact that he asked the question for us, is God unjust? And then he slams down his fist on the table and says, may it never be and may you never ask such a question. Put your hand over your mouth. It's not a question of curiosity. It's a question of contempt. You don't question the justice of God. And then verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He said that during the time when he covered him up with his hand and allowed his glory to pass by him. You see, the glory of God is manifest in the way that he shows compassion on whomever he will and mercy on whomever he will. Because if he were only just and not compassionate, there would be no mercy and there would be no compassion. Because none are worthy. And so it depends not on human will as much as you might want it. It depends not on human exertion, no matter how hard you try, but only on God and his mercy. He uses Pharaoh as an example. Pharaoh was a wicked man, a man who had an evil intention in his heart from start to finish. And yet God raised him up in his evil condition, not only to be a ruler of the known world at that time, but also to subject his own chosen people for hundreds of years as slaves. Why did he allow this man to rise up? He allowed him to rise up and he elevated him to power for the same reason he elevates any leader, and that is for his own glory. How does he gain glory through Pharaoh? 
He gains glory through Pharaoh by hardening Pharaoh's already hard heart and allowing him to experience the judgment of God because of the way that he treated his people and disrespected God's honor. It's an incredible story. You say, well, wait a second. It's not very fair that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. Well, it doesn't say that Pharaoh had some soft heart towards God that God hardened. Every heart is born like a hard-boiled egg. You can't, reserve, you can't reverse it. Isn't it amazing that Christians can only give birth to non-Christians? Isn't it amazing that as much as that child looks like you and talks like you and has that same quirk as you and has the same features as you, one of the things that they also inherit from you is your absolutely hopeless, corrupt nature. That's what you pass on. Godly Christian parents don't give birth to godly Christian children. In fact, just speaking of Luther, I can't remember where, but when he and Katie finally got married, it's a great story. She was one of nine nuns that he smuggled out of a convent in an old herring barrel. They all had their own herring barrel, by the way. He married off eight of them because they couldn't provide for themselves, and there was one left over, Katie, and after two years of persistence, he finally married her. And when they had their first child, you know what he said in dedicating that child? Praise be to God that he has allowed us to beget this little heathen. You don't give birth to godly little ones. They come out with a hard heart. But here's what I can also promise you. Scripture is clear that God never hardens a soft heart. The heart that by his spirit he has given new life to, the heart that he has replaced with flesh instead of stone, the heart that has an inkling towards him and a desire for him is not a heart that he hardens. He did Pharaoh no injustice by allowing him to be used for this purpose. He has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19 continues his argument. It's really the linchpin of everything, this section through verse 29. You will say then, why does God still find fault? Or who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make of the same lump one vessel for honored use, the other for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order that, making known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? Stop there for a moment and circle back and ask ourselves, what exactly is he saying here? Is there fault in God? What about man's will to choose? That was something that was certainly a problem even at the time of the Reformation. In his excellent book, which is going to serve as the textbook for our Sunday lectures, Sunday seminars that begin next Sunday, will go for six weeks, beginning at 9 o'clock right here. Michael Reeves, in his excellent book, The Unquenchable Flame, introduces one of the challenges that Luther had in his debates with the eminent humanist Erasmus. And he says this, again, a longer section, but I wish to have you hear it. And so, in 1524, Erasmus wrote on the freedom of the will, in which he argued that while, of course, Luther was right to say that we can never really earn merit before God, he had gone too far. For, Erasmus purred, God is like a loving father and takes our fumbling efforts and smiles on them as if they were really worth something. Erasmus always liked to position himself as a wise man above the crude extremes of more petty minds. 
And this was typical Erasmus, aiming at the sophisticated middle position between Rome and the Reformation. But of course, he smiled like Luther. He wanted to uphold God's grace. Yet surely God would reward a good deed. Quite simply, he could not understand that Luther placed all his certainty of salvation on Christ alone and not on his own performance at all. He said this, the sum of our religion is peace and unanimity, but these can scarcely stand unless we define as little as possible. You see, Erasmus didn't like a defined theology. Erasmus didn't like you to give a clear answer. Erasmus would rather that preachers come to difficult texts and just say, well, you know, it's very difficult. We don't really know. It would be really unwise and unloving for me to teach this clearly as if there was a simple answer revealed to us in Scripture by the Spirit. Luther would have none of that. Luther wrote an entire book called The Bondage of the Will in response to Erasmus's The Freedom of the Will. And in that, he launches out of Romans 9.19 and he unpacks in this glorious line-by-line refutation of that book with words like this. Now let us look at Paul who takes up the next from Moses in Romans 9. How wretchedly is the diatribe, and this is the stuff that was written by Erasmus, How wretchedly is this diatribe tormented by that passage? It adopts every conceivable posture to avoid losing free will. He says this of his writings. Its sole achievement by this and by similar jugglings with words is to fill up time and momentarily to whisk the real issue out of sight and to drag the discussion away in another direction. It thinks we are as thick-headed and dim-witted or as little interested in the subject as it is itself. As little children in fear or at play cover their eyes with their hands and think that because they see nobody, nobody sees them, so the diatribe, which cannot bear the bright beams, nay, the lightning flashes of the clearest words, uses every means to pretend that it does not see what the facts are in hope of persuading us that our eyes are covered also and that we cannot see them either. All these maneuvers, however, are signs of a mind under conviction, recklessly resisting invincible truth. Brothers and sisters, the mind that seeks to distract us from the clear teaching of the Bible about this issue or any other issue, and there are many that would fall under this category today, is a mind twisted in an effort to hide itself from the reality that is bright as a flash of lightning. He says in the text, unashamedly and without any lack of clarity that God chose of the same lump, some to be vessels of honorable use and others of dishonorable use. What does that mean? Well, the answer comes in the words, one lump. I'll spare you the technical definitions, but suffice it to say there are several perspectives on how to explain this. Let me tell you what we believe here at this church and what the Reformation taught. The Reformation taught that God, before anything was created, knew the beginning from the end. That the order was this, that within the divine counsel of God, he determined to create the world and all that is in it, including ordaining sin and all the effects, including those who would come to faith in Christ and those who would reject him and the eternal destiny of all. But he did it in this particular order. He ordained that men would fall, 
that mankind would fall. And then from that one fallen, cursed lump of humanity in his grace and mercy and compassion chose some to be redeemed and allowed the rest to continue on in their campaign of rebellion. He did not take neutral people and because of his own callous heart chose to send some to a hopeless eternity damned forever and then chose others to be redeemed. No, all were cursed, all were destined for hell, all were equally damnable and yet in his kindness and mercy he chose some and allowed the rest to remain on the course they were on. This is objectionable to us, but it is based on his predestination, based on his foreknowledge, not of your willingness to choose him, but on his knowledge of you. And it is based ultimately on his love to restore a relationship and to preserve a righteous remnant. Look at verses 25 to 29. He continues, in response to these objections, as indeed he says in Hosea, And those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. He says, I'm like Hosea, willing to buy back this wretched harlot of a wife for sale at the slave market, having left him, having gone whoring after others, having been used and abused and spent, cast off to the highest bidder, he comes back and he buys her for himself. And the story of Hosea and Gomer is a reflection of the story of Christ and his church. We're no better. And yet in his mercy, he buys us back. And it doesn't mean that he will not come and to judge And to destroy all those who continue in their rebellion against him. Because verse 27 through 30, or through 29 says this. And Isaiah cries concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only the remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. You see, the judgment will come. God will not allow his own glory to be reviled. He will not allow his justice to be ignored. He will not allow his wrath to go unpaid. And so, those who refuse him will be judged. And yet, as we are reminded here, the remnant made up, not just of Jews by race, but made up of the true people of God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. They are the ones that remain because they have been preserved, because they are now a righteous remnant. Not not righteous because of their own external righteousness, but righteous because of the righteousness given to them by God, the righteousness of Christ imputed to them, not infused into them through the church and her sacraments. Well, to this, we find the solution then in the last section as was read to us the last couple of weeks. What then shall we say? What's the solution to all of this? That Gentiles, here it is, the answer, who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. 
But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith. But as if they were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It doesn't matter if you have the law, it doesn't matter if you have good works, if you think the law or the works are going to be what gets you to God, you are always going to be running in the wrong direction. And beloved, it is a broad road that leads there. Many are on it. Many think that religion will save them. They think their good works will save them. They think the law will save them. Now, this is what the Jewish people believed and to this day still believe. They are appalled at the idea that these Gentiles, people like you and me, were able to obtain the righteousness, the justification that was promised through nothing but faith as our sin was imputed to Christ and his righteousness to us. You say, isn't passion enough? Isn't a desire enough? Isn't working hard for it and believing with all your heart enough? Yeah, they're wrong, but at least they're sincere. Paul says that's not going to save you either. Brothers, Chapter 10, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they would be saved. They need to be saved like everybody else. The Jews don't get to skip the line. They're not less unsaved than anybody else. An unbelieving Jew living in the heart of Jerusalem is just as unsaved as the unbelieving Muslim making his way to Mecca. They are just as unsaved. They have no special privilege before God. They have no advanced standing. They have no special credit Everybody needs the righteousness of Christ. He says, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, the righteousness for everyone who believes. Could there be a more wonderful statement? The only thing that is required is not to work your way to the righteousness of God, but to submit yourself to the avalanche of the righteousness of God poured out upon you. Not something that you work for and earn, but something that you ask for and receive. It is something that you passively receive. It is from him to you. Beloved, it is not that you accept Jesus. It is that Jesus accepts you. And that righteousness given to you. Isn't it wonderful to know that no matter what you do, nothing will impact his love for you? That no matter what you do, nothing will make you more or less righteous in his eyes if you are a true believer? That all of that has been accomplished once for all in him. He is the end of the law. It's over. Nothing else to pursue, nothing else to chase only for you to receive the righteousness. And you could take that word righteousness and you could put the word justification underneath it so you knew what it really meant. You are justified. Justified and made righteous in the eyes of God because of nothing other than the finished work of Christ. That is Paul's proposition. That's his answer to the opposition. And that's his solution to the tension that we so often feel when contemplating a doctrine of this magnitude. And it's the reason why we celebrate the Reformation, because brave men were willing to take this truth that they had learned afresh and let themselves be burned at the stake before recanting and allowing the people to continue in darkness. May God grant a future generation of reformers the same courage to do that, 
should they find themselves in a similar situation. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time together today in your word as we have just briefly tried to again review what we've learned over the last several months in this amazing passage of Romans. And as we prepare now to witness the baptisms of those who have put their faith and trust in you, a visible picture of what it means to be buried with Christ in his death and raised up with him in newness of life, I ask that you would encourage our hearts. As we welcome the young children back into the service as well, that that they would witness this, just like we invite them back to witness communion so that they can ask their parents, why do you do that? And may that open up a door for parents to once again give them the simple truth of the gospel for your glory and for their eternal benefit. And all God's people said, amen.